Okay, uh, good afternoon or good morning. Good afternoon in Texas. Good morning in California. Good evening in Inverness in Scotland. You are watching Boom It's on the Blockchain. Today we're going to be speaking about ESG with the blockchain. We're going to be speaking about the oil price. We'll hit you in the card. We'll do some more Bitcoin Libertarian NFTs. But straight away, I'm going to bring in today's co host, Garrett. How's it going, Garrett? Good. How are you doing, Alistair? Yeah, good. Thanks. Good. So, yeah, all good. All good. So, yep, another week's gone by, everybody, and we're back here again. So, time just flies when we're having fun, as they say. So, today, we're going to start off by speaking ESG in the blockchain. So, let's, like, bring this up here as well. So, so explain to people what ESG actually stands for, first of all, Garrett. Environmental Social governance um environmental social governance let me add this I to the street that, uh... this is a this is from the world economic forum talking about blockchain the digital economy how can the blockchain principles help improve esg systems so so let's let's talk about this sort of so why are companies you, you know are so interested in ESG and how is it able to raise finance for people right now then Garrett? Well, the thing is, is uh, ESG has become the corporate go-to term for, you know, look, we're, we're part of a green transition and we're doing the right thing. Um, it's unfortunately come under a lot of uh, fire in the last week. Actually, I would say fortunately instead of unfortunately, it's unfortunate for the companies that have been using this to just greenwash, but um, I think it's uh, it, it's become uh, the new CSR. I mean, over I think it was like around twelve years ago, around the recession, CSR was the big thing: corporate social responsibility. And this is just the new uh, MBA term for our companies. You know making a green transition. So. Yeah, so, so the governance part would basically relates to what the old uh, um, initials I worked out at uh, yeah. in terms of governance, uh, looking after your employees, giving them a fair wage, all that part of it's covered by governance. And then we've got the environmental and social part of it as well. So, you know, think about what they're having to do for environmental link. Yeah, the um, when it comes to you know the environmental piece of it, it tends to be a lot less about the environment and the governance. It's more about the the social um, because these companies, a lot of them, just focus on the social recognition they can get for you know using this or raising a fund on ESG, and they focus you know less on the technology piece and not on you know they they focus more on saying the term and raising the money instead of um, building a product that can traceably, you know, make some sort of difference. So it's, um, there's a big problem with it, but it's also, I do think that blockchain principles really, there's a lot to offer on the governance end of the spectrum, but the environment, is uh, still a big question. You know, we have to figure out ways where it, it kind of collapses back down to, well, there really is traceable evidence within these companies that they are, you know, contributing to environmentally friendly practices and practices that benefit communities, you know, as opposed to exploit them and take advantage of their resources. So, yeah, I think the verifiable bit is really where the blockchain can make such a huge difference to how these companies are held accountable for this. So, yeah. if, so for people out there, Garrett, just explain how the blockchain can hold these things verifiable in terms of just looking at your own project and we are tracking CO2 emissions of small oil operators. Yeah, yeah, it's um, basically... The approach that I kind of took was, well, if these companies, they want to, everybody wants to say ESG, but if there was a standard, if there was an easy way to run through, 
you know, all of your company's practices, everything it's done and all of the products that it's produced and give a good number of, um, you know, how much CO2 those activities produce, that would be good. You know, that would be a step in the right direction towards creating reporting that at least backs up the claim of ESG, you know, whereas now it's just kind of a shot in the dark and there is, um, you know, even companies trying to use blockchain to do things internally, it's still hidden from the outside world. They don't want to show the full picture. And I think, you know, it would be better to use something like I've developed, you know, where it's a, um, open source solution. Everybody can kind of tweak it to their own needs and necessities, but, um, ultimately it's transparent and everybody can see it, you know, the investors that they're, you know, these companies are, you know, getting money from, um, and, you know, getting money from on the basis of that oil company or whatever it ends up being, or energy fund saying that they're an ESG initiative, well, they need the data to back that up. So um, we look to help them help themselves, you know, be the fishing rod and the lessons to teach them to fish instead of, you know, give them a fish and say we're ESG, which is. Yeah. And, and that's essentially what companies are trying to do with ESG. And I think as the blockchain comes in and everything becomes more verifiable. So for people out there to understand the technology, what the blockchain can do out with cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. See, see the problem or the, the understanding and going forward is that, you know, the Bitcoin came along, you know, operates on the blockchain. We're starting to get other use cases for it. And one of the use cases that people don't really comprehend yet, which I think will be one of the, the huge advances is with the blockchain is this ability to have everything verifiable on chain. So therefore all these companies can claim whatever they want to do. But if we hash this information on the blockchain, then we can all access this information and they can be held accountable for that. They can't manipulate the data. They can't have the data and information on their own databases. They can't change that. They can't choose what they want to release to us if they're releasing information out there, and now we are just talking about tracking CO2 emissions, but there's so many different things. And, you know, this is one of the things with government and government with blockchain is, you know, if you think of election results and stuff like that as well, like right now, elections in America is there's only essentially two parties. I know there's a third party with Libertarian, the good and the fourth with the Green Party and, you know, multiple little parties as well. But generally, there's just two parties that actually get any votes. So these two parties that are there, they get the votes. But since 2016, they've actually whoever's lost has claimed the other uh, side has cheated, you know. So, yeah, they're just sort of bad well, losers. Arguably, arguably, you could say since 2000, because that's when, the, you know... It first became oh, with, a uh, George Bush, Junior. yeah, with George Bush and Gore. It was like it was very unclear, and then it ended up swaying to Bush. Uh, yeah, he, he claimed victory early. You know, that yep. was Trump's advice to Doctor Oz. There, claim early, even when the results aren't in. So, yep. what are you thinking about? There is, you know. If these things can be verifiable, so there's already systems in place for people to have voting systems tracking on the blockchain. Now, these voting systems are, you know, they're quite simple. All they do is that once you voted, you'll be able to log in and check if your votes counted. Now, you still got to get 200 million people to vote and check do if they want to do this. But it just makes that a little bit more verifiable for this vote to be counted because it's actually hashed on chain. So we can see all the votes and then all the individuals can come in, could do that. And then it's funny that how that in itself is, you know, that's too risky, but it's okay to have like a box <laughs> with paper crosses in it. You know, we can't switch the box of paper crosses on it. No, no, we can't do that. You know what I mean? People have to go home. Yeah. We have to count the paper crosses, but you know, and if there's a wrong paper cross, there's a spoiled ballot, <laughs> you, know? you know, Scotland, yeah. they, they obviously cheated Scotland when we went for our last independence vote as well. So it's just, you know, I just have to, you know, except the fact that more people wanted to stay part of the UK and then they wanted to Scotland again independence. And sometimes an election result you're upset about, but you've just got to accept it. But see, the thing is what the blockchain can do with this verifiable way of uh, hashing everything on chain is 
we can start holding everything accountable. It doesn't fix it. It just means there's, there's just this extra level of accountability. Now, accountability is generally not what governments want, especially when it comes to what they're spending their money on, because we would like to know what they're spending their money on rather than an annual pie chart. <laughs> there we go, everybody. There's the annual pie chart. That was There's defense, there's social programs, there's education, there's a couple other things, right? Thanks very much. Yeah. We'll see you in four years from now. You know, I mean, that type of information out there is, but if we can start to put stuff verifiable, so this is whereby governments with this technology that they know they have to adopt, but in going forward, what it's going to do is going to help streamline government and get rid of excess costs. Now, if you're in government right now, you might not be wanting this. And what's going to do it with ESG in the blockchain for people to understand is that they need to understand that having this accountability and where the information is verifiable, just in the same way Garrett's doing it with his software that he's created in sort of tracking CO2 emissions. Because right now, the tracking of CO2 emissions is essentially not even done. And if it is done, it's done by the pumper. It's done on a huge scale. And we just get this thing in terms of here's the numbers, high-level numbers. China's CO2 emissions, India's CO2 emissions, Europe's CO2 emissions, America's CO2 emissions. There we go. Boom. But it's like, if you're at home and you want to find out more information and you want to drill into this, yeah, you can start reading reports. But if you could drill into every single uh, pump jack and you could drill into every single coal plant and you could drill into every single product, like what's the CO2 emissions of this pair of Nike sneakers? You know, the technology is in place for us to do this now. It's just this over the next 20, 30 years, we're going to apply this technology so our access to information and verifiable information is going to completely change, you know, because we'll be able to do this. And what the blockchain is allowing people to do, if you're sitting home, is like, so everything is going to be verifiable and I'll be able to drill into that information. Yes, if they set it up like that, they'll be able to do this. And that's obviously going to be interesting going forward as well. And that's what we should start to do with elections. And that's what we should start to do with multiple different things, especially when we're trying to hold the government accountable and what they're actually looking to do, you know? Exactly. Look, we've, just got a, we've got a question in here, Garrett. Perfect. Look, I love it when someone puts it. Are you guys involved in the World Bank Group's latest CBDC moves? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... No. But I've actually written a white paper. So our first white paper, I'll actually bring that up. You can actually, what are the CBDC moves, Garrett? If you, I bring you back in so you're a bit bigger there as well. If you explain that and I'll get my white paper that I haven't talked about for a little well, while. Yeah, the central bank digital currencies, uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, governments interested in doing this. I remember, I think uh, I spoke to, a guy from Bermuda, I think it was Bermuda. I'm, yeah, Bermuda, that was saying that they're looking to do one there. Um, you know, I'm. I, I would almost say it's it's a good thing, but it's um. Maybe it's only a good thing if the transparency is a piece of it. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of. Uh, questions you know to, to ask yourself and you know kind of come to understand uh you know if, if it would be um you know how how the government would implement it um so yeah i i think so and i think like just in terms of let me bring this in it's actually nothing to do with what ahmed is just saying in, but uh, anyway it's bit of self-promotion which i obviously enjoy the most got it so it's here it is look finance blockchain tokenization let's go up to google tokenization the future of financial markets what is tokenization of blockchain look what's popping up number second in the list finance infrastructure through blockchain tokenization zion look at that you know absolutely brilliant and then you can actually i'll just not to upset here we go uh, Ethan, who actually wrote the paper, it's actually available in Springer. So let's have a look there as well. So this was our original white paper that we wrote 
And one of the, and there was with professors from University of Michigan and professors from uh, Columbia and the University of Florida. And I think it is, let's have a look. There's Yifan, I think maybe it's, yeah, he he's actually, uh, Zeng is, he is uh, author with the World Bank as well. So you can see that Zeng's actually written quite a few reports, 123, you know, highly yeah. respectable guy in the space, especially with finance infrastructure. So what we wanted to speak about here is, was the, uh, when we created Zinecoin and tokenized the first uh, lease interest, so that's what we did. And then we worked with uh, Aussie and we tokenized who's working on a board. Aussie's a, a landman and blockchain strategist and operator out of Texas. Um, his father was an oil and gas attorney, ran an oil company in Texas for basically 25 years in the real estate business as well. We did our first uh, interest, tokenized them. And now we went and tokenized our first wells in Indiana. And now, believe it or not, as I bring in other information that's coming up here as well, is that... You know, we've just announced our 10th oil and gas distributions for our tokenized energy fund. So this was written back in October 2020. So we wrote this white paper, uh, Peter Adrians as well in the white paper, Dr. Peter Adrians. He's basically one of the leading guys in blockchain, especially uh, University of uh, Michigan. I did a guest lecture to one of his uh, MBA students before as well. Uh, he's actually on a sabbatical right now. He's on he's on tour basically because he's so smart in that as well. Really, really nice guy. You get a chance to see wow. him, go see Dr. Peter Adrians. He's like one of the number one guys in talking about blockchain uh, in America right now. So it's an honor for me to be involved in writing a white paper with these guys. So we wrote about this white paper or what our concept was. So what actually started to happen is um, we started to develop the, this tokenized energy fund. And then what we did is we looked at it trying to create this one underlying coin for the oil and gas industry. Obviously, you've never got market adoption from the super majors and then looked at it from a different angle and started going into the non-op interest side of things. You know, if you look at our previous um, podcast at a presentation of energy tokens, whereby rather than trying to get full market adoption, if we tokenize uh, uh, assets on an individual basis and a project by project basis or a fund by fund basis, we can sort of get round and, th and this allowed us to do the pivot of the company to basically start moving forward with this. And then what we've done in the last essentially six to eight months is we've acquired interest into, I think, the 89 wells in Texas right now. We're working on acquiring nice. overriding interest in a project in Indiana right now as well. We're moving away from being set up as an operator. We had to go through the process to be an operator. We got registered as an operator. We got our grandfather clause in Indiana. Yes, we're a small operator were set up, but we just went through the process to understand the pain points from the non-op interest point of view. So really what we've done is we've taken this original white paper and we've developed it. We've developed the model. What's interesting about the white paper is if you're interested in energy and blockchain, because it's been written by different professors, you know, our intern, uh, Yifeng, uh, Ethan, he was, uh, he'd written about the company. So he worked with us for basically about 18 months. He researched the company and what we're doing. And we were the case study of the process of this. So it allows people to understand the development of the company itself. And that's where we've been going with this. So uh, really what's happened in the last just six months, now these tokens are going to be able to trade. What's interesting in what we're doing with GATA is rather than just having these, you know, NFSTs, non-fungible security tokens, is we want to build in a carbon tracker CO2 piece of them as well, whereby, you know, we're looking at ESG in the blockchain. What we want to do is create tokens on behalf of energy operators where by utilizing the software GATA's got and having it written into the smart contract, what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to go down to a granular level and track the CO2 emissions of these tokens as they're actually um, producing uh, 
essentially oil and then providing distributions you know what's interesting about our tokenized fund is we're sort of first to market with it we're speaking to different solar projects wind projects different oil projects just now uh, i'll move on to the oil price uh, in a second which is our second topic we want to speak about today but really what it is is this technology starting to break through and this white paper was the first white paper that was ever written on the subject area. You know, and if you go and look at people like uh, Dr. Peter Adrian's, you know, we review some of his other publications. You know, he's got some other pretty clever things that are going on there as well. If we look at Ethan as well, I see he's done a couple of other uh, publications there. So if you look at what Ethan's actually doing now as well. So he's done four there as well. So, you know, ultimately what you're seeing is that as these publications get done, obviously there's different professors in doing that. Edward, and he was School of Construction Management, University of Florida. He's a professor there as well. So he was involved in the title of this. So, you know, and it, it's an honor for me to be alongside these guys. Right now, we've had 508 people download and pay for this publication. You know, if anyone out there wants a copy of the publication, I can actually just send it to you, you know. And we'll edit that bit out if Ethan and the professor, they probably won't list it anyway, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. uh, it's $40 if you don't know me. If you message me through LinkedIn, I'll send you a copy of it as well. But it's it provides good information in terms of background for this thing, you know? So, uh, wait a minute. Ahmed's got another question that's coming in here as well. Perfect. Let's like bring you back in. Ahmed, I appreciate you, you getting involved today's publication. It's... Um, I'm losing the mouse over here. Here we go. So it seems like a petrodollar project to complete Ripple, right? So, you know, if, if you think about, let's let's bring us up bigger there as well. So if you think about the petrodollar project and what it was, and, you know, the original oil coin concept and white paper that was written back in 2007, 2017, 2018, these are all sort of stemming from this, Ahmed. So it's not like it's like we've come on to this and we've started this whole thing. We're looking at this from a different angle, from a non-op interest point of view, and essentially creating a mechanism for people out there to invest in energy assets through tokens. But really, you're correct in what you're saying. It's you know, the reason people wanted to do the original oil coin concept, it's good in terms of $200 billion a year that are spent on essentially uh, transactional fees in the oil and gas sector. They're transporting money from different parts of the world, whereby if we had an underlying coin for doing this, the, the reason why a petrodollar hasn't come into full market adoption yet is because we've not got any, we need the major operators to do it because essentially they run all the oil and gas production. You know, they're talking about maybe Gazprom. You know, if this war in Ukraine ends, and Europe still wants to continue to buy gas from Russia, which they're doing right now, rather than send money in the ruble, which people don't really want to do, they might, Gazprom might say, well, we've got our own Gazprom cryptocurrency and we want payment in that type thing. But it needs the super majors that own oil, the production to do it. Venezuela were the closest to get this adopted out there but the problem was they were sort of using it to get around sanctions and rather than using it to actually solve the problem of what we're looking to do with this technology. I still think in going forward, there will be some form of oil coin, whether it's going to be a net zero coin, an energy coin. This will take place in the marketplace, but it will be a decision whereby if ExxonMobil, Saudi Aramco, Equinor, BP, Shell, all major players in the blockchain for energy um, group that are based out of Houston. So they're all coming together, working in blockchain projects. If that group decided we are going to create our own version of an oil coin and they went to market and they started doing projects with it and they started to run a project using their own version of this oil coin, then yes, that can go to market space. But if you're coming up as a startup company and, you know, let, let's be realistic, you know, Garrett and I are both running startup companies in this space. Yeah, we're passionate, we're believers in the technology and like, like anyone else is coming in there. So obviously, even though I created Zinecoin, as an energy-based coin, if they, if they don't get adoption by the super majors, it's just not going to work, you know? So that's when we had to pivot the project and think, well, this technology is still good. 
But what we're going to look to do with this technology is we're going to apply it on a project by project basis and look to help non-op interest holders. So if you were, and it's about creating liquidity. So you think of a, an oil project, a mature oil project, produces oil for 20 to 30 years. How do you invest in that project? from a non-op interest holder point of view, unless you know the operator, unless you've got a large amount of money, unless you're an accredited investor, essentially you've got no chance of getting involved in this project. Then you put your 50, 100,000, $200,000 into this project. As it produces energy, you get distributions and a decline come occur for 20 years. You know, if you want to sell that asset, how do you sell that asset? What we're looking to do with energy tokens and what we start to do in terms of what we did with Zion is um, by us tokenizing a fund and people investing into this tokenized fund, and then we're using money from this fund to acquire interest into these wells, then suddenly everyone owns fractional interest into these oil projects. Now, when the Zion starts to trade, uh, on an ATS, then more people will be able to invest into the fund. But it also means that anyone who owns shares, they'll be able to, or tokens, they'll be able to trade those tokens in and out of these projects. Now, you're still, eventually, you're still going to want to hold on to these tokens for a longer term, because ultimately, you'll get the benefit with what's happening. And then really, what we've done is, we were sort of first to market in terms of, um, you know, launching this uh, oil-backed security token, you know, we're calling them NFSTs, non-fungible security tokens, energy backs. We wrote this white paper about it, finance infrastructure through blockchain-based tokenization, which wrote about the concept. Now we're going a little bit further down the concept. These ATSs are coming online. Once we get the first energy project, the list on energy tokens as well. And then the way Zion will grow as well as Zion will end up, because it owns part of the platform, it'll take a fractional interest in each project as we come in there and it'll scale out like that so energy tokens itself is more like a software in terms of a sort of amazon type model whereby we create the tokens on behalf of the energy companies and we take a fractional interest of each token and that's how we'll scale this project out so if i'm the only company that ever tokenizes energy assets then it's not going to be successful but what i believe is happening is we are the tip of the spear and what's going to happen going forward ahmed is we're going to end up having hundreds if not thousands of tokens created and it's not just going to be in our platform it's going to be all over the world and it's going to be mass market adoption to this technology of tokenization which i believe is going to be one of the the big drivers in terms of tokenizing physical assets and that's really what it is and tokenizing government assets so you know this that's why the the, the paper's called finance infrastructure through blockchain based tokenization so you know thanks for the questions with that we could talk about that all day but uh, you know we're already halfway through the podcast we've not even gotten to our second topic of the day here so let me bring up what we were actually going to talk about as well is the oil price so let me bring you back in here now oh sorry Garrett. let me just technical issues so so let's look at the oil price right now so there's wti 110 that's the us oil price brent crude really that was sort of uk run out of aberdeen but what they use of all of europe so brent crude's at 114 wti's at 110 so what can you give in terms of our viewers uh, uh, Garrett, about oil price and where the oil futures are going well you know when it comes to oil prices and you know having to make uh, guesses and bets there it's um i i would have to say i think we're going to see things go up i mean i think it's going to be um a continued upward trend i mean we saw i think 140 dollars a barrel back um around the 2008 recession so there's a I think a, a large chance that it continues to keep going up. Yeah, there, there's the five, there's the one month. So let's have a look then as well. This is oilprice.net. So a website I'll actually like because you can actually download these little widgets in terms of updated oil price, you know? So it's, uh, 
But let's go back uh, oil price forecast. So here we go. This is the company capital.com. You know, they've got a lot that they can do up to the minute oil prices. But you can just look at the price going from December 2020 in the middle of lockdown. And it's going up to today. It's essentially doubled, can it? You know? Yeah. It's got, well, it's more than doubled. It's gone from less than 50 to over a, over 110, 113. We're looking at U.S. oil price right now. And so if you're thinking and going forward, you know, where's the oil price going forward? It's like, as Garrett says, it's not going to go down the way, you know? it's It might go down once we get supplies there and the war in Ukraine or the Russian war in Ukraine, if that actually subsides and they get become some sort of agreement or whatever happens out there, it might go down the way. But ultimately, oil price is only going to go up. Now... If we go back and is this, that's the one day. Let's see if we can do it by a week and see. Yeah, that, so that's going back even further. And you can see the volatility from sort of June 2015. Does this give us a price from there? That's about $60, but there you can see the mouse. And then it hit a point there as well when it was, you know, sometime in 2018, it was close to 90, went way down when lockdown. You know, actually went to minus 37 at one point that day with futures uh, market and everything crashed. And in terms of there was nowhere the oil to go. So what actually happened was we were all in lockdown. They were still producing oil. The refineries got full. We put all these massive oil tankers out to the Gulf of Mexico. They all got full. The pipelines all got full. The trucks all got full. And then suddenly there was nowhere for the oil to go. So, and that was like a massive crash in the market space and it wiped out, you know, essentially, I think it was, it was a million jobs lost in the oil and gas uh, industry in America oh, yeah, during that time. And it wasn't like, and there was lots of companies, there was three operators we worked with during that time as well. We had interest in projects. They went bankrupt as well. It, what helped us for Zion was it was lack of exposure. So we weren't exposed because we only had small interests. We were also a software company involved in blockchain, whereby if we were just a small operator and you had your fixed costs at a certain price and then you've got no income, you know, a lot of these margins and oil companies, especially when they start going to deep water drilling and stuff like that, you know, the margins are tight. You know, it might be turning over $100 million, but you might only be making a profit of $7 million. So it's like, especially for a lot of the deep water drilling stuff, when you're going out to the Gulf of Mexico or off the coast of Brazil. So you could be turning over $500 million. Oh, yeah, massive company. But you suddenly you've got no income. You know, two months of that, you're not going to be in business for much longer because you're not going to be able to pay for the fixed costs. And it just wiped so many guys out, you know, because and there were, it wasn't like, and, you know, COVID did that to people when we shut everything in. So if you start looking at the oil price going forward now, and then, you know, everybody's looking at oil as this product that, you know, it causes all the CO2 emissions. Well, generally, uh, most of the CO2 emissions, yeah, obviously oil does it with gasoline, but, you know, a lot of it's from coal and it's industrial production using massive coal plants in India and China, but we don't seem to go on about that so much the same as well, because it's an easy target for oil. But then we realize it's for 4,000 products. We use it for plastics. We use it for makeup. We use it for so many different things. You know, so many pharmaceutical products have oil in them and refined gasoline there as well to make the plastics so people don't think about it like that so oh wait a minute here's a this is perfect ahmed's back in appreciate all oh, yeah putting all the questions in ahmed so we'll bring ahmed's next question in a second but now they're talking about by 2050 it's going to go up to 185 190 dollars to a barrel of oil and that's 2050 from now so that's some predictions here and this is what this capital.com uh, website was actually going to and it might go over 200 it's probably not going to go over 200 this year at one point they just thought it was going to go astronomically high but now they seem to think it's going to sit along this level and they're looking at depending on what happens potentially it could be 120 dollars a barrel uh, by the end of the year but that's going to affect everybody again because we use uh, in, in terms of transportation so all the cost your goods go up and so high oil price is bad it doesn't help with inflation it doesn't help with the cost of goods and stores and there's multiple other reasons why you're better off having uh, you know lower oil prices and then you want to be energy independent as well because suddenly it becomes the political side of things is what's happening in europe you know for places like germany 80 percent of their uh, gas comes from russia so that obviously means that 
whatever's happening with Russia and Ukraine, Germany can't exactly just, they don't want to go in like permanent power uh, cut, you know, so they're still going to have to yeah. buy the gas, you know, so there's all these things come into what with oil, but America is a place that can be a hundred percent energy independent, but because of regulation and because of political bias, it, it, they don't want to do this. So we're happy to import 12% of our oil from um, Saudi Arabia. It's like, we're not happy for Saudi Arabia to have a golf tournament <laughs> where the golfers leave. No, no, we can't do that. Look at the way they treat people. Blah, 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 blah. Greg Norman's, but we'll take 12% of your oil. That's not a problem at all because we need gasoline in the pumps. You know, it's, it, it seems like a ridiculous argument there as well. But I think in going forward, and this is where our project and tokenization is interesting as well as, you know, the funding of oil projects and private equity money has come out of oil and gas. And it's come out because of regulation. So you've got all the big private equity firms, you know, pulling out. BlackRock, uh, tw they, were, they were essentially funding 12% of all independent upstream projects back two years ago. Now they have come out and said, we're not going to invest in any upstream projects. So that's one company creating a huge hole in the market space. So if you're an energy operator and you're out there looking for funding right now, and you're thinking, how am I going to get money to fund my next project? I've got a product that we need. I've got a product that there's a shortage of. I just need to get it out of the ground. I need the funding to do that. You know, get in touch. We can basically help you set up an energy token and you can take this energy token and you can go out to the crypto community and you can ask them, do they want to invest in your energy project? And then this is why we're working with Garrett in terms of what he's doing in terms of the ESG and the blockchain tracking, the carbon emissions is we want to still track the carbon emissions of this energy project and make it available for people to see. And so people can offset this um, essentially carbon that are created. So they can offset the emissions. They can be transparent in what they're doing. It can show what it's doing here compared to emissions when you're taking deep water drilling projects out in the North Sea. It can, the emissions to that are go higher in terms of the emissions to doing some small land drilling project here, you know, but this is part of the project we're looking to do. So wait a minute, let's bring Ahmed because he's, you know, appreciate coming in. Here we go, Ahmed again. So I believe you should partner with an AML, CTF firms and maybe stablecoin project, Digital Euro Association to complete the puzzle of financial frameworks to attract major oil players. So what do you make Ahmed's latest comment, Garrett? Well, I think um, it's definitely an intelligent uh, take on things. I, I think that it is um, a lot, there's a lot of difficulty with getting a uh, oil player to want to use somebody else's thing. You know, they, they, they want to feel like they built their own thing internally. They help as much control as they can over it. So that's uh, a hurdle there, but you know, something like a stable coin might be good for them, but it would have to have adequate backing, whether that's with um, an energy asset like oil or, you know, something else. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that as well. And it's also the fact that, you know, th th what you're saying there, Ahmed, is what we believe in, but it's to get the adoption. Now, the price is $113 right now. You know, the oil companies are making, you know, when it, we looked at that chart a second ago, when it's down at 60, they're not making the money like they're making right now. You know, they, they're doing record um, quarterly results, record profits, you know, and because of the, the current climate, you know, so they're going to be less inclined to adopt something new and take it to market space when things are there. If the oil price goes back to $60, $70, then they start looking at these types of technology. See, the blockchain, the blockchain, what is going to allow the, a lot of the energy companies and why they like it right now is it cuts a lot of fixed costs. So smart contracts, well, that's one of the first things. Company Data Gumbo, if you want to read them online. Um, so they're based out of Houston and they're doing a lot of the smart contracts for the oil and gas projects. And they'll want to run, uh, so they'll be able to start cutting fixed costs. So what a smart contract will do in terms of oil project is it'll remove back-end administration. But if you've got companies, and I sat in panel with Saudi Aramco and Shell and BP, and they think in 10 years from now, and this was maybe 
four years ago, so maybe six years, seven years from now, they could save anywhere between seven to 10% of fixed costs by uh, moving everything to smart contracts. So what the smart contract will do is once the goods and that have been delivered on site, uh, the contract's been fulfilled, they automatically get paid. So from a vendor's perspective, they're going to like this. Everything's designed up front. So suddenly all back-end administration, invoicing, all the legal aspects of trying to negotiate back-end, that's all going to be taken away. So you'll be cutting a lot of legal fees. You'll be cutting all the sort of back-end administration fees. And that's a huge cost uh, for a lot of companies. Now, obviously, what this technology is going to do is going to take out some personnel. Yeah, we get that, you know. So that's part of the thing is, but that's the sort of technology they're already seeing with this. And, you know, the other one is sharing seismic data in terms of this via viable information is, you know, in the past, you know, if, if I'm Shell and Garrett's BP, or Garrett will be Exxon and I'll be BP, you know, since I'm Scottish and he's uh, American. So um, so I'm British Petroleum, as Obama liked to call them when they were bumping oil in the Gulf of Mexico, and Garrett's Exxon Mobile. We've got, we've got a, a big oil project we want to work together on. We both want to be operator. We've both got seismic data. Mm, hey, Garrett, do you want to put your seismic data on my BP database? Uh, for us to share from there. Uh, uh, do I want to put my seismic data on Exxon's database? We got it. No chance. Oh, we can create a permission blockchain. So we both get access to it. The only people on the permission blockchain is me and Garrett and BP and Exxon Mobile, and we can share seismic data. So now they're starting to work together in a way they've never been able to work together in the past. And then this is just like opens the Pandora's box of, well, wait a minute, this one bit of the technology of verifiable information and sharing and permission blockchain allows us to work together. How else can it work? And really what's happening, Ahmed, is there's just like, there's just every day the energy industry is just seeing new use cases of this technology. And it's just going to be about, you know, when the adoption of this technology comes into play. So, yeah, appreciate the questions coming in there, Ahmed. Thank you very much. So, as we're whizzing through things already, we're on 41 minutes already, Gary. I always think, you know, we've got to keep under an hour because if it's over an hour, you know, for some reason, uh, unless you're Joe Rogan, um, YouTube didn't like you, you know. So, yeah. it's, um, so, let's have a look in terms of chewing the cud. So, let's go back today. Chewing the cud this week, you know, we've just seen one of these horrible shootings out in Texas right now, where there was 19 children aged between 7 and 10, and two teachers killed. And what we want to discuss is gun control. I saw, I saw Ted Cruz on TV yesterday saying, this is not the time to talk about gun control. I think probably is the time to talk about gun control. You know, well, We're not going to talk about gun control when it's the middle of COVID and we're all locked inside and there's not been any mass shooting because no one's at school. There's no need to talk about gun control that time, Ted. But right now, you know, you're in Texas right now. Give give us your insight into this, Garrett, because then I'll give you my Scottish perspective. <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know, it's a deeply, deeply uh, saddening situation. I mean, it's something that it's unfortunate to see them jump right into politics and you know seeing Beto O'Rourke kind of you know in, in the middle of a you know it's a, the go the elected governor telling the families and the people affected like hey here's the resources available the mental health resources and the stuff you could use for him to have the audacity to get up and make it about gun control and like say something like hey you need to do something right it's too soon. You know, it's, we could talk about it maybe at some point in the future, but right now it's about healing that community of Uvalde, which, you know, I'd never heard about that town until this happened. I, you know, I've been here well, for a while. Yeah. What's the population in that town? It's a small town, I think South, uh, Southwest of San Antonio. And it just deeply, deeply unfortunate. I don't think, it's the right time to just make it immediately about a gun control thing. I think it should be about, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough, tough situation, but it's, um, 
it, it, right now it should be about helping the people affected. Oh, yeah, and... no, no, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Got it. You know, let, let, let me let me bring in. But it just like this. It, the problem is that when there's a mass shooting, it, there's sort of a time. It's like you can. He went and did it at the wrong time when he's actually speaking to them there. But like everyone else in the news, and since we've got a twenty-four-seven news channel, you know, you, you should be able to sort of discuss this out with that time there. So let yeah. me bring up like the first slide here in terms of gun control. Right. So back when uh, America defeated the British, you know, which everyone loves to tell me about, you know, become independent, you know, no longer a British colony, created the United States of America. And then they wrote in the Constitution, you know, right to bear arms. The top gun was the traditional gun of the day. Got it, right? Okay. Now, the magazine capacity is one. Now, I don't know if people remember this. I don't know if you've seen The Patriot, you know, that movie with Mel Gibson. I love how Mel Gibson, he's Australian, but he did that. I think I've heard of that one. You've not seen it. It's it, it's like Braveheart. Have you seen Braveheart? Yeah, I've seen Braveheart. I haven't seen that. Right. Well, at Braveheart, it's sort of like, he obviously was successful at that, so he tried to do an American version of Patriot. It's still quite good. You know what I mean? He's still got the same Aussie accent that he did when he was the Scottish uh, William Wallace. But he was yeah. sort of this mythical character. Anyway, Mel Gibson's so good in this one anyway. And he's able to basically... Uh, so back then, they have to take the, like, the little bullet, which was a little sort of steel ball, chuck it in, chuck in some gunpowder, get it up and shoot it. Now, according to this, you could do three rounds per minute, you know? So it'd like down... In that movie, I think Mel Gibson could probably do about six. You know, he's so fast. He's unbelievable. It tends yeah. to where like most people are quite slow, right? Yep. That was the gun at the time, right? When the con when the piece of paper was written with the Constitution forming that there as well. Now we're looking at the typical modern-day AR-15 rifle. Now, the problem with this is it does 30 It's got 30-round capacity, got it, and then effective rate of fire is... 45 rounds per minute which i actually believe you know what i mean muzzle velocity is a bit higher and it can actually go a lot further because the problem with a lot of the old musket one and if you actually research that quite often there was a lot of backfiring so as much as people actually you know shot somebody the chances are it backfired and blew your sort of face out as well you know so so i think i understand that the right to bear arms is there you know i just think that and I'm not saying that it changed the constitution. You know what I mean? I'm not coming to this country and just saying, well, you've got to change the right to bear arms. I'm just saying things like a modern day AR-15 rifle, it would be good if people who got access to this gun were better vetted. Now, if you're a veteran and you've gone to the military and you've been trained how to use these types of weapons, then fair enough. You can be vetted to have this if you're going to do this, but you can't just have it. You can go to the store and buy this one, the same as any other one. And I was in first time I went to Houston, I went to the gun range and it, the guy goes, uh, are you guys from the US? He went, no. He says, well, we're going to have to do a, a test in order to use the guns in the gun range. So it was me and a guy, Andy Lowe. We were there from Scotland. So we were in there trying to do this type thing. I've, I've shot a shotgun before from Scotland. You know, I got my first yeah. gun when I was a living in Scotland. You know, it was a right. 4 shotgun to shoot rabbits. You know what I mean? So there's reasons why people want to do this. But ultimately, we were in there and then there was a Japanese service team. I can't remember what the company were there, but they are shooting the AR-15 rifle and everyone's in suits in there. You know what I mean? It was like something out of a bad movie and stuff. And we were all in there and we were getting all these guns and just shooting stuff and things like that as well. Which is, you know, but it was actually in the gun range, got it. And it was actually controlled. You know what I mean? So it was, yep. you know, so you got a shot of using this type thing. But I feel that the has to be in America is you can't just harp back to that. And then it comes back to the NRA. And we, we spoke about this online. So the NRA is obviously against this because they represent the National Rifle Association. Now, just to give a bit of background, the National Rifle Association currently takes in about $412 million a year and spends about $420 million a year. Most of the money it spends is on political donations. Now, in Congress right now, in the last uh, election, uh, the NRA helped fund 223 Republican candidates and f helped fund, you know, about, I think it was about 75 Democrat candidates 
that they went out and said that we've actually provided political donations to these people. So that's like 300 people. That's half of the people who are actually in Congress have received funding from the NRA. Now, I get it. You're running a business. The guy who's the CEO of the NRA, I think his name's Charlie, you know, he makes $2 million a year, obviously does a good job because, you know, he can't get things done through constitution. And that's nothing to get what he's doing. I just feel out there with what's happening with young kids. Now, in Scotland right now, you've got to get a license. So, you know, anyone in Scotland can have a gun but you've got to have a license to have that gun. And it's from that license allows you to have ammunition. And then basically once a year, the police pop around to see you and just say, oh, you've got this gun. Where do you keep this gun? It has to be under lock and key. And so people can't actually access it. And you've got to have a reason why you're having a gun. I live in the country, I go shoot rabbits. I've got a gun, I go to the gun range. All these things I don't, I don't mind are there as well. You know, people in Kentucky living in the middle of nowhere, if anyone in Kentucky's watching this show, like Mitch McConnell, it's like, I'm not telling you you're a farmer in Kentucky is not allowed a gun, Mitch. I'm just worried about in San Diego, the guy living in a one-bedroom apartment two miles from a house has got a bigger arsenal than Rambo. You know what I mean? There's 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 a sort of little connection there as well. And yeah. it, it's like to bring that in, and it might just be a case that we've got to do vetting for this type of weapon. Because essentially, of, and this was up until 2020, and I think I read from 19... 85 to 2020 it was 120 uh, mass shootings in America. And of them, over 85% were using AR-15s or other types of high-powered um, rifles, you know? So, you know, whether it's an AK-47 or whatever the type of weapon it is there. So something has to be done with that. And I just feel even a simple vetting process of that will make people feel a bit safer in terms of going forward. You know, it, it brings to the next question of like, well, you know, where does the defense budget go from this as well? So, you know, I started to go into, you know, my favorite subject is like, nuclear weapons you know what i mean so we've got the war in ukraine so let's bring up one of the companies that i look at like is bae systems so B, so what's this got to do with gun control so right now in russia so if you think of nuclear bombs everybody going on a bit of a tangent now so if you think nuclear bombs there's twelve thousand nuclear bombs in the world right now russia has six thousand we've got four thousand you know scotland yeah. has 177 We've actually got the second most nuclear bombs in Europe out with Russia. You believe that, Garrett, you know? And it's all done by these Russian nuclear submarines called Trident, and they're in the Clyde, and they're actually manufactured by this company, BAE Systems. If you're wanting to invest in any company right now, because there's a war in Ukraine, BAE Systems, Raytheon, their stock prices are rocketing, by the way, people. So if you're pulling your money out of software, pop it into one of these guys. But what's interesting about this, Garnet, is I was coming back to, this is where we're going in a circle. Let's have a look. Oh, oh look, making a positive impact, BAE Systems. Wait a minute, where are we going to have the... Where was their ESG policy? I had it on the website earlier. It was really good. So it was basically like they're now, they've got an ESG policy of trying to cut emissions by one and a half percent, making weapons by 2025. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one of the crazy things here, though, is the ridiculous double standard. Um, I, I heard somebody, I was actually listening to Ron Paul. Um, yesterday, you know, he was kind of digesting this. It was a Ron Paul Liberty Report. And one of the in most interesting things he brought up was the fact that we just gave $40 billion to Ukraine. And I'll tell you, that's, you know, not going to hugs and kisses. Um, and we gave $40 billion to Ukraine, not our citizens. We gave it to Ukraine. And what's that going to go to? It's going to go to weapons it's going to go to guns that are going to go into the hands of civilians and there i'll tell you one thing there isn't much of a background check when you're in the middle of a war like that and we're willing to arm the ukrainians but you know when the question of gun control comes here we just think nothing could ever happen in america we think nothing like that nothing like what's happening in ukraine could ever happen here 
And I think it's an interesting um, thought. It's an interesting piece of thought because, you know, you just look at that and it's like, well, we're all about arming the Ukrainians, but you know, that, that's, um, you know, they're at war. That's okay. They're at war. But what would, what would happen if, you know, we had a situation like that, you know, I'm not saying we will anytime soon, but it's, um, it's a, it's a, I I think Mexico or Canada are going to invade us. Yeah, that's why Ukraine's not going to invade Russia because they've got six thousand nuclear bombs. But I mean, it, but it I, does... agree, I agree, I agree with you, Garrett, and I agree that like it's like we talked about the funding for veterans last week. Is yeah. they don't have enough ve- money to pay veterans for funding, so you've got all these veterans homeless in the street and they can't get yeah. access to health care. But we've just written a, an executive order of $46 billion just went straight out there. And it's a bit like when you're thinking in terms of, you know, we left $80 billion worth of weapons with the Taliban. You know, it's yeah, like it's, it's double standard. That's another great example of, you know, the, the, the weapons we left with the Taliban, the weapons we left you know, it, all throughout Iraq. Um, it's, oh, the Iraq, the Iraq thing as well. That was Trump. You know, I don't agree with everything Trump says, but when Trump came out and said the Iraq war was a disaster and we went to war based on a lie, but he was 100% right. He came out there and he accused Bush's brother of it. Remember on the stage there as well. And he was just, he was just all over the place because Trump was right. We went to war on a lie on the basis that this guy might have one nuclear bomb on a dossier. Yep that Bush Jr. and Tony Blair both agreed from. Now, Tony, Tony Blair's the Middle East peace envoy. Wait a minute, Tony, I thought you just... You basically, you started a war that, you know, killed a million people in the Middle East and displaced about five million, but now he's the Middle East peace envoy. You know, he's just got yeah. a knighthood. He's just got a knighthood, Sir Tony now. You know, and then Sir Tony went into government with no money. You know, this is the other one you bring in. It's like, how do these politicians have no money and they go into government get a salary of 180 grand and then come out of government yeah. worth 60 million. It's like, it's, it's a bit you like, know, it it's, was, it's unbelievable. Um, Tony Blair. I, I remember that guy from when I was a kid, Tony Blair was such a joke, but you know, the, Boris Johnson's a joke. The Theresa May was a joke, but I have to say the one good PM that the UK has had, it was David Cameron. That guy, that guy would go in know. there. And, you don't, know, you don't I, think I, so? Nah, he he was a he was a sleaze ball too, you know. So he was, well, he, but he, he was, was going there, and he was able to like work the work the theater and everything because Canadian politics and British politics they have the theater, and Cameron would just go in there and just rip the theater and just like say stuff that was like. <laughs> oh, just, it's no doubt he was smart, but he was like yeah. in Scotland. He's not liked, you know. I mean, anybody he's that can uh, it's just like he's not like there as well because you know they had all this thing as well because he was the one because the national health service they, yeah. they had a thing in terms of like there's 13 percent of it privatized now so 13 percent of the money that goes national health service has now been privatized yeah. because of private companies and then yeah. they did this report that basically like him and all his cabinet were major shareholders in all these american companies that were winning the contracts <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're conflict, conflict of interest there, David. Oh, we'll just say. I, mean, I, I, look, I look back, but we, who have they? Who have the Scottish liked when it comes to the prime minister? Uh, we, we, we like we like the French, we like the Germans, we like we, we like the Belgian, we like the Dutch, we like basically everybody except the English. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's why that's why that Braveheart movie is so good. No, but in general, <laughs> but in general, it's just like you know, Britain's invaded ninety three percent of the world. You know, yeah. So that that's what put great in Great Britain. We were only Britain until we invaded ninety percent, but we got the extra three percent. Boom, ninety three percent. So your Americans and your Russians and all these guys out there, if they want to compete with Britain, you've got to do a bit more invading and going forward. You know, yeah. so it's like, <laughs> but that was all part of the you know the, building the colony. You know what I mean? And you start thinking about yeah. that. And it's just like what was happening there. That's where we would go over. Excuse me, we're just moving in there, you know. Um, we're just coming in. Hello, how are you? We're just coming. We're going to give you some weapons. We've got this book called the Bible. Just read that. And uh, any of your national treasures? Yes, we'll have some of that. <laughs> we'll take all that back to Buckingham Palace. The stuff we don't need, we'll stick in a museum, you know. And then you can come over and visit us and uh, pay fifteen dollars to see it behind a glass cage. <laughs> <laughs> 
I shouldn't be laughing, but and then they, can we get it back? No, no, these are artifacts now. They, they used to be called your national treasures. Now they're called yeah. artifacts. We've changed the name. They're in the glass cabinet. They're there to stay. You're more than welcome to come over. And if you pay your fifteen dollars, we'll 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 happily give you access and a tour to tell you what we've taken. They're just from curating you. them. Yeah, curating, curating, exactly. That's exactly what they're doing. That's the right word. So, so that's where it comes in. And then you start looking at it, it, it just goes, it just flips back and forward. Look, I've got a BA Systems sustainability page. What does sustainability and ESG mean to uh, them? And now they've got a picture of like everyone there. And it's super multicultural. You've got somebody from every race that's there, and a nice little hand thing there as well. You know, we built a we built the nuclear um, bombs for Scotland. You know, the 177 there. You know, there's none of that. And do you hear that, Gary? I do. committed to building a sustainable future and are reducing the environmental impact of our operations and products. We value and develop our people. We make a positive social and economic contribution to our communities. We develop innovative technologies and collaborate with our supply chains. This approach is fundamental to our business performance. Our performance-driven and values-led culture underpins our approach. We are committed to reducing the impact of our activities and products on the environment and aim to improve energy efficiency. Oh yeah, these guys, these guys are right up the street from me in Austin. They're, they're everywhere. We have set ourselves the target of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions. No, they've got a boss. <laughs> Working towards a net zero value chain by 2050. We strive to inspire and develop high performing people able to fulfill their potential. Their safety and well being is of paramount importance. Our business is dependent on having a diverse and inclusive workforce where every contribution is valued and everyone can be themselves and give their best. We have a positive social impact on our local communities and are committed to respecting and upholding human rights wherever we operate in respect of activities under our full direct control. <laughs> Governance means following the laws and regulations wherever we operate, having high standards of conduct and behavior, and striving to ensure we have a sustainable and responsible... I'm still waiting for the nuclear bombs in Scotland section. Oh, do they have that? I don't think I would put it in the video. They made all our Trident bombs. They've got a contract for another 120 billion to make the new ones. Oh wow, that's a that's a chunk of change. Yeah, it's because apparently the old ones that they they built us, you know, aren't good anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't know how nuclear bombs go off. You know, I don't know how they go bad. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware that they had a shelf life. Um, yeah, yeah. But apparently they're, they're bad. So in Scotland, 170 nuclear bombs in the Clyde, you know, uh, we'll have to replace. And BA Systems is, uh, you know, a subsidiary of them has got the contract. So that's not a little bad chunk of change for there as well. The, what was great about that is, and it was exactly what you're saying, sort of greenwashing, Garrett, is didn't actually say anything what they do. You know what I mean? Yeah, they did not say that. That's a great example. Circling back to the greenwashing, they didn't say anything about what they do. They just said, "Oh, we're focused on the environment. We want to fix things." But I, I don't. I couldn't tell you. I mean, you told me what they do. I mean, they're building these bombs, but it's like oh, they, they build all sorts of weapons. There's I legitimately had no idea what they did until you told me that. I had no idea. Right, see, so here's a go. Let's look at the things there. Like you know, operating globally. This is their air stuff air systems you know wow. so you've got all that so the future technologies that looks a pretty good plane they're actually built there cyber security augmented reality these guys weapon systems and munitions let's have a quick look this is really what they do this is more like what where why was this not and they've got like 82 pages of stuff to look at <laughs> so this is what they do you know the naval gun 
the machine gun system, you know, let's have a look what else, the, the naval gun system, different types of ammunition, the arm fisher mine neutralization system. <laughs> I love the name, arch fisher mine neutralization system. Wow, so like they're a, the ones, they make the fancy weapons. That's what yeah, they yeah, do. Like, it doesn't actually tell us what un underwater weapons you know we've got some stuff there oh under what this looks like it could be like this is where now we're getting more into the old scottish trident there's the trident upgrades we're doing guys innovation underwater weapons designed and manufactured means we are trusted by our customers around the world to deliver new weapons upgrades and support <laughs> Wow, they do everything. <laughs> they do everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, so so that's it. So, you know, it, it, you suddenly go from one to the other and, you, and then you see what happens. But, you know, right now their stock prices are doing well, everybody. So if you're thinking of investing in someone, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, BAE Systems, you know, not a bad place to stick your cash. Anyway, that's perfect. I bought I bought a BAE Systems share on uh, the Robinhood app the other day as well. So there you go, everybody. You know, just to track it. So, <clears throat> so if there's peace, it's not good for these guys. You know, it's good when you uh, Biden's given away forty billion dollars worth of the the old U.S. arsenal because then they have to replenish it, and the taxpayer back home, pff, that's what you're paying for. Yeah, it's it's and fine when the taxpayers are. Paying them and we're shipping and we're shipping them somewhere else. That's uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're shipping them somewhere else and it's just replenishing the stocks of these things, so it's obviously the contracts have to go around and it goes around in a bit of a circle. And this is yeah. why the government doesn't want the blockchain infringing and in what they're up to, because you wouldn't be too happy if we logged in and found out what the government's spending and their defense budget on on a daily basis, you know. All right. And that's what exactly. started happening from there. So perfect. So that's us talked about um, ESG. Good way to finish with. Uh, BAE Systems uh, video to show everyone out there that, you know, even if you manufacture nuclear weapons, you can also get involved in saving the environment, unless any of your nuclear weapons get used, and then there'll be no environment exactly. left. It's, it's <laughs> standard. It's standard. If we all just we blow the place up, then suddenly if maybe, they're making here, it, maybe they're just making them so that they don't work. They're making them like they no, don't work. No, they don't, they, it's, they're environmentally <laughs> friendly, you know what I mean? So the well, that would be the environmentally friendly thing to collect the money, but the bombs don't actually work. So then, if uh, you know they get used or somebody pushes the button, then they can't come back later on and sue them. You know, when we rebuild society, yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah we use solar <laughs> panels for the power to create these things. So don't worry, everybody. Yeah. You know, we've, oh we've, we've used the new wind turbine out in the North Sea to power, to power the right. plant to make the latest nuclear bomb. So high fives on that one, everybody at BA Systems. So glad that you've got cool. your ESG, environmental, and social, and governance policy in place. So let me just take that down just now. So perfect. So, well, that's been a great show again. Once again, we've gone over. Really appreciate you coming in, Ahmed. Thank you very much for the comments. It's always good yeah, thanks for coming the comments, again, folks. Everybody. We really appreciate Mm -hmm. So that's yep. been great. So thanks again, Garrett. Good to see you. Um, stay safe out in Texas. Absolutely. Everyone else, stay safe at home right now. Um, yep. Have a good week. We'll be back next week. We've got our guest coming on. It's Crypto Mum. So that's going to be exciting with the launch of her new book, The Bitcoin Cinderella. So this will be yeah. exciting, bringing awesome. Crypto Mum in there and her um take on the the cryptocurrency market space and how she's trying to educate everybody so you've been listening to or watching boom it's on the blockchain my name is alistair caithness have a nice day